It's good to see all of you. And it's good, contrary to what you may think, if you have a baby in here, it's good to see babies in church. I've been to churches where they've actually asked babies to leave, and I'm like, no, that's it's like music to my ears. So don't don't think they're too loud or distracting. It's good. It's good to see babies and families in church. We are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Let's read it, let's pray, and let's see what Jesus has to say to us this morning. So, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Christ Jesus, these words are short, but they're powerful this morning. I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive the word you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you may know or may not know the name Mackenzie Scott. You might not know who that is. You probably know her ex-husband, Jeff Bezos. If you don't know Jeff Bezos, you probably have chosen the overlord of Amazon to be your delivery service of choice. Jeff Bezos is the founder of Amazon, billionaire, one of the richest people in the world. And a few years ago, he and his wife got a divorce. And conveniently, she gets a certain percentage of Amazon and has this net worth in the tens of billions. And pretty famously, maybe you've seen her name in the news because of how much she's giving away. She's given away like, more than $10 billion in the last couple of years. And it's become quite a story. Now, you and I might look at that and think, great, a few more tens of billions to go, and you would be living on my income level. You still have plenty of more to give. But nonetheless, she's giving what seems to be way more uh, than other billionaires. I mean, 20 to, I read uh, on Axios, 22% of her net worth she's giving away. That's, that's astounding when you're talking about 50 plus billion dollars. Now let me contrast that with the generosity of another woman. A woman Jesus told us about in Luke 21. It's a short story, just four verses. Jesus is at the temple and he sees a poor widow come in and give an offering and she gives two, the details are small copper coins. So in We only have four verses, but listen to these words of description that Jesus uses. She's poor and she's a widow. The word small is actually used to describe those coins and her name is not even given to us. So she's an unnamed, poor, elderly woman with not much money. Jesus actually tells us she gives all that she has. So here's a story of two generous women and I'm not gonna try to speak to the motives of either of them because I don't know their hearts. But what I do know is that both of those gifts have received very different responses. When you give tens of billions of dollars, you get news stories written about you. People know when you give that much money. But when you give two small copper coins on a routine trip to worship in the temple, Not much is said. In fact, our Savior has to point her out to his followers. But Jesus is making a very similar point in Luke 21 about the poor widow who gives two small copper coins that he's making in this text. That it's not about the size of our gift. It's about the heart of the giver. 
So in this text, Matthew 6, 2 through 4, it is about giving, but in some ways it's about something we all struggle with in more areas than just giving. It's something Jesus is going to apply to prayer and he's going to apply later to fasting. But I think the main idea this morning is that who we're living for is actually what makes us generous. Who we are living for is actually what makes us generous. The first point this morning is living and giving for the praise of others. Jesus is talking about something that we all deal with. He's talking about a performance. He says in verse two, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Now they probably weren't literally blowing a trumpet before they gave, but think toot your own horn type of language. The hypocrites do that in the synagogues and on the street. Why? To be applauded by people. To be applauded by people. What Jesus is describing here is a performance, and specifically a spiritual performance. We've talked about what we've kind of called the curated life. Curating your life to look and appear a certain way. But curating your life can also be profoundly spiritual as we see in these verses. Performances are all attempting to prove something, right? You're attempting to prove that you're proficient in some sport, some athletic competition, some art. You're performing to say, look, here's what I can do. And you're trying to prove something to the people who are watching you. We want people to see us and like us and approve of us. We want to have the kind of identity that people approve of. But remember from last week, this word hypocrite was used to talk about actors in a play. And some commentators I read this week talked about the hypocrites Jesus are talking about. They are just willing to play whatever role they need to play and see the world as their stage. To be a hypocrite, to live for the praise of others means we are constrained and compelled only by what others are going to approve of. So we're always asking, what is success here? What will get me praise and applause? What will get me approval? We always have an eye towards what's acceptable to others. So it means we have to keep a close watch on the fads of the day and ensure we're not out of line. We gotta be careful to stay in the circle of what is most acceptable. But Jesus also says that these people, he's got a curious little phrase here at the end of verse two. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. They've already received their reward. Now, the word reward for us, if you're a parent, you might think of like, hey, if you do good in the grocery store, you're gonna get a reward when we get to the car. Rewards are typically good things. This word can mean good, but it really just means you're repaid. You're repaid for whatever you got. Think of other times in scriptures where it says uh, you've received your wages. Hey, you've, you've received what you've earned by your actions. Jesus is saying they are living for applause and the reward that they get for that, they, they've already gotten it. If you want to choose to live for others, the neat thing about God is he'll give you exactly what you're asking for. I've heard that said about prayer before. I think from Tim Keller, God will either give you exactly what you're asking for often to teach you a lesson that you don't quite know what to ask for, or he'll give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will often employ natural consequences to give you exactly the outcome of your actions that lie before you. So if we live for the approval of others, 
then that reward is exactly what we'll get. But we'll learn how fleeting it is. We'll learn, like our culture is learning right now, that that goalpost seems to keep moving. You can never just rest in the approval of others. Especially in the spiritual world. I mean, this is, hey, when you're, he doesn't say if you give. He assumes everybody's giving. He assumes everybody is giving. That's amazing in itself. But what he's saying is, what's your motive behind giving? Are you giving in order to get applause from others? So others will see you and applaud you and say, hey, well, you are absolutely the most spiritual person I've ever met. If that's your motive, boom, you just got the reward right there in the action because you did it, they saw you, they appreciate what you're doing. That's your reward. And then we learn as we go home, that doesn't really satisfy me at all. I need to do something else because I need their applause again. I need the satisfaction of knowing that they approve of me again and again and again. And it becomes a fickle game to live for the praise of others. We also learn that those who are cheering for us one day might be calling for our heads the next. You might get their praise this time, but next time, what if you misstep? What if you don't do the thing that gets their applause? Then all of a sudden you get canceled, destroyed. You get cast out. You no longer belong. But notice when Jesus is talking about giving, he's not talking about the size of the gift. He's not even talking about a percentage. Maybe you've been in church and you've heard the word tithe before. You ought to give 10%. And I've heard other people say, well, that doesn't apply to us. That's from the Old Testament. Look, there's a lot from the Old Testament we carry over. So that's not a good reason to say it doesn't apply to us. But I do think there's a very strategic reason that the New Testament doesn't say give a certain percentage of your income. And it's the same principle that Jesus has been showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we don't want to live righteously by aiming for a minimum standard. The whole concept of following Jesus in the New Testament is that we don't live for a minimum standard thinking, if only I do this, then I'm righteous. I give 10% and no more. No, no, Second Corinthians, cheerful givers. What can you give cheerfully expecting nothing in return? How can you give from the heart? So when Jesus is showing us how to follow him and the way of Jesus, the way of being a disciple and a follower and a learner from Jesus, an apprentice to Jesus is to be someone who gives. But it's to be someone who gives for the right motives. So if if we shouldn't be living and giving for the praise of others, what should we be giving for? What should we be living and giving for? Because I think this applies way more than just giving, right? This principle Don't embrace spiritual performance so others see it and give you applause. But rather, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. I think our our second point of the morning is living and giving for our heavenly Father. Having a father, and Jesus uses this word a lot. It's almost like super concentrated. If you look at the whole book of Matthew, the the uses of the word father are very concentrated to this set of verses. He says it over and over. And when we see father, we need to see this picture of the gospel where God adopts us into his family. Having a father in heaven means we've been adopted by him. 
So when you get saved, when God saves you, he's adopting you and he's saying, you now belong. You're my child that I'm never gonna turn my back on. I'm never gonna stop loving. I'm never gonna give up on and I am your father that you have access to always and forever. But like we said last week, we belong to God because of our adoption, but we also become like him and slowly begin to bear the family resemblance. So we give generously because God gives generously. But what he's saying in these verses is that we live for our heavenly father. We only care if the father sees us in our faithfulness and our obedience. That means we're content with hidden, quiet faithfulness. We live for an audience of one. We live to please the father, not others in this world. So that means we're actually free to give, not because we're trying to prove something about ourselves. That's what performances are. You perform in order to prove something about yourself. But what Jesus is saying is, I want you to give because that's who you are. I want you to give because of who your father is. I want you to give because of your DNA, because of your heart, because of who your identity, who you are. Not because you're trying to prove to everybody else who you are, but because your father in heaven is generous and he's adopted you and he's pouring the family resemblance into you to where you're growing into a mature, whole, complete, perfect follower of Jesus. And that means giving, but that means giving from a good heart with good motives that the father sees. But listen, that's actually freeing because it means we can act in line with who we are, even if that isn't easy and it doesn't feel natural yet. We lean into the commands of Jesus when we commit to following the way of Jesus. But we're not obeying in order to prove something to ourselves. We're not obeying in order to prove that we belong. We're not obeying in order to prove to others that we belong to Jesus. We can obey being well aware of what's actually true of us. We can obey Jesus not because we feel like it and it's easy. We obey Jesus because we say, I belong to you. And I know people who belong to you do this, so I'm going to commit to doing this. Even if I don't feel it yet, trusting my feelings are going to catch up to it. And we can be well aware that there's actually a gap between who God has invited us to be and then what we actually want to do. Sometimes there's a huge gap between those two things. The truth is we don't always want to do what God has asked us to. If you've ever read Dallas Willard, he talks a lot about this. And he's got a quote in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, where he says, a baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than the Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise and godly living. And he has this whole section of the book where he talks about the way sometimes as Christians we believe in magic. We'll see God ask us to do something, so we'll pray, God help me do it, and then we'll go off and expect in a moment of crisis, in a moment when we're not expecting it, we just expect to be patient or kind or generous. And Dallas Willard says, actually, if we wanna do what Jesus did, we have to do what Jesus did. Because doing everything Jesus did is what forms us to be like him so that in those moments of what he calls crisis, we ooze generosity. We ooze patience. That doesn't just come by magic because we happen to have good intentions once in a while. He says the general human failing is to want what's right and important, but at the same time not commit to the kind of life that's going to produce that action. 
So what Jesus is saying here is not change your feelings to want to give more. He's actually saying just do it in secret and in private and watch God meet you there. Dallas Willard says we, we want this kind of life. We, I think maybe we all want to be generous people. The question would be, are we willing to commit to the kind of life that's going to make us generous people? Or is our whole spiritual life a performance? That's what Jesus is warning about in this passage. Just a performance. Hey, I show up as a performance. I show up as a way to prove to others and myself that I am who I'm claiming to be and I want you to see me and applause to me. Or are we content to fellowship with the Father in the secret place? That only comes from a heart of love. We were talking this morning about a vibrant relationship or this John 15 word, abide, dwell, be with God. That's what Jesus is inviting us to in Matthew 6. He's inviting you to see giving and generosity as a way to fellowship with your father. I was asked a couple years ago in a counseling process to draw a picture of what I thought my relationship with God was like. And I thought, whoa, I'm not a big, at the time was totally not a big counseling person. And that just seemed way too uh, hippie for me. Draw a, draw a picture, we're really doing that. So I thought about it cynically for the whole week and about an hour before our session. So okay, I guess I gotta do something. So I prayed, I'm like, God, I don't know what to, I don't know, draw a picture. I don't draw any pictures, much less of this. I'm not a very creative person. So I ended up thinking, praying, and just a couple minutes before my session with my counselor, I drew a picture of God uh, as a coach. And then it was on a football field, and then on the sideline, I was kind of at the end of the line. And my, my counselor was like, all right, explain this to me. I said, well, the analogy that I, the way that sometimes I see God relating to me, and this is totally wrong, let me just put that up front. Not good illustration. The way I see God relating to me is God's looking for the best performers to go out and represent who he is. And if you don't do that, you're gonna be on the bench. You might still be on the team. You still have the jersey. You still have a locker in the locker room. You still get to go tell your friends and family, I'm on the team. But really, you're of no use to him. And I grew up playing sports like all the time and that just became ingrained in me and I didn't realize it until now I'm going, man, I wanna be useful for God. If I wanna be useful for God, my life becomes a what? A performance. Let me perform up to a certain level so that God sees that I'm worthy of his love and affection, of his attention. I'm worthy for God to entrust things to me. I wonder what that picture would look like for you, but that's a conversation for another day. I think for this passage, what Jesus is saying is, he doesn't say, and your coach who sees in secret will reward you. He doesn't say your general. He doesn't say your boss. He says your father. And for so many of us, that is a loaded word. Maybe you had a great father. We're gonna talk more about father next week as we start to look at prayer and we're going to look at the section on prayer and then the very first line where we pray our father in heaven but what jesus wants to do is he takes this image of father that he knows is loaded for all of us with all sorts of baggage and difficulty 
even if you had a great dad, you're gonna have challenges wrapping your mind around God as father because no matter how great your dad is, he's a human being. But Jesus is willing to take that and redeem that. Redeem that word in your life so that you can begin to see God as father. As a God who sees you. It says he sees in secret. Go read Psalm 139 again. Essentially he's saying, there's nowhere I can go to escape you. But he actually comes to find comfort in that. Hey, it's actually a good thing that God sees everything about me. I think one of our greatest fears as human beings is that someone would see and know everything about us and then choose to not love us. So the way that typically manifests in relationships is we don't want to be known. I'd rather be known a little and loved for what people know about me than known a lot and be worried that people are going to walk away from me because they found out too much. But what Jesus is saying is that the Father sees in secret. He knows everything about you. And he actually wants you to hold with an open hand all of your possessions so that he can give you a reward. It's not wrong to live for rewards. The question is, what rewards are we living for? And if, if we want the reward from God, what does that look like? The reward of living for the pleasure of our Father is that we get his presence forever. The reward in giving is that we get to give away everything that won't really satisfy us anyways. That's the reward of giving. The reward of giving is for me to realize, you know what, I could hold on to this but this isn't gonna satisfy me. It's gonna give me a false sense of security and safety. If I think I have to get and protect all of my own rewards, and if I think this life is all there is, then I have to live it up. The Bible says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I have to travel, promote myself, try to be liked by others, save up enough stuff and money, because this is all that I have. But if we believe that there's a heavenly Father out there, who is infinite and eternal, which means his love for you is infinite and eternal, which means your death cannot even stop his love from being poured out on you, so you will last beyond death to be with him forever. He'll actually give you a new body to live with him forever. If we believe that there's a heavenly father out there that we're gonna spend eternity with, then we can take a look around at this world and we can relate to the things and the people here totally differently. If I believe in God's love for me, they can actually shake loose my grip on the other things that I'm living with and for. And I can actually become a generous person who gives. And in my giving, I'm saying, God, I don't feel like giving, but you already know that because you see everything about me. You see me in secret. I don't feel like giving. I'm not even confident in how to give or if I'm giving to the right place. I'll even confess to you the temptation that I'd rather do this loud and proud so other people pat me on the back so I at least feel some satisfaction. But God, I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna give and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna meet me there. That's living in faith. Trusting that God's gonna meet you in a place of obedience where you're not sure how he's gonna provide when you do give. That's what God is inviting us to. Really, I would say the way that we could maybe sum all of this up is that we can be so secure in the way our Father loves us that we're actually moved to selflessly love others. And the way that selfless love looks here is giving and generosity. We can be so secure, so solid 
as people who are loved by the Father, that you're actually freed to love others. So the the motivation, the grounding, if you want to figure out how to love others, actually stop looking at others for a minute. Look up to God. And that's the confusing thing about studying these passages in the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 6 because you go, okay, on the surface, the header in my Bible says how to give. On the surface, this looks like a text about giving. But as you read it over and over and meditate on it, you begin to realize this isn't so much just a passage about giving as it is about my relationship with the Father and how if that relationship's healthy, that God's gonna do good things in me that are gonna flow through me to others. And I think that's what Jesus is inviting us to here in these three short verses in Matthew chapter six. He's inviting us not to live and give for the praise of others, for the applause of others, He's actually asking us to be totally content in the affection that God gives us. Be content in the love that God gives you. Be content in the attention God gives you. Be content with the reward that God gives you, which, by the way, will last forever versus the rewards you get here. He's going to get to that later in chapter 6. But he's inviting you to see the reality that if you really believe that you are beloved by God, you'll be able to let go of the things of this life and give them away and actually give them away with a pure heart for you don't need the praise of others. You're giving those things away because that's who your father is and you're coming to find that you are bearing more and more the family resemblance. So let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for this word. Jesus, thank you for just your masterful teaching. You were amazing in every way, and it's hard to overemphasize certain parts of who you are. But Jesus, I just got to give thanks to you because your teaching is unbelievable that you could give us three, a couple of lines on giving and pack in there so much about the human heart. Jesus, you, you nailed it. I am tempted to live for the applause of others. You nailed it. I'm not super content with fellowshipping with the Father in the hidden, secret, and quiet place. You nailed it, Jesus. I don't always want to give. I'd rather save, store, take for myself. But the good thing, Jesus, about reading your word is that you always supply the things you're demanding from us. So when you want us to be these kinds of people, You come and you change our hearts and you do it. And so I pray that this morning you'd show us the way. You'd give us the strength to become these kinds of people. I pray that some of us here this morning that have never experienced the deep fellowship with the Father would experience that this morning, Jesus. They might know in their heads that they're adopted. They might know in their heads that you love them and they might try with everything in them to feel like they love you. But I pray this morning you would meet them in the quietness of their own heart and give them a real tangible experience that they are loved by you and that their obedience doesn't have to be a performance to anyone else, but their obedience can simply be a letter of love back to the Father. 
And I pray that as a church family, God, we would become a generous people. And I was, you know my heart, God, I was preparing for this this week and I was thinking to myself, how many pastors prepare to preach, and God, I gotta confess I do this, with the mentality of, how can I challenge my people this week? Where are my people falling short? But God, I was reading this text and I was actually thinking quite the opposite. God, thank you for a people that are so faithful and obedient in this area. God, thank you that so many people here in this room this morning at Shalford are generous. Not just to give to the church, which is definitely part of it, but to give to me, to give to others, to meet needs, are generous with their time and their energy and their gifts. God, I thank you for that culture of this church that I've watched over the last six years. So Jesus, I pray this morning we'd step out in faith to give and watch you meet us there. I pray we'd be secure in your love, God, in such a way that it would free us to love others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.